Welcome to Living Proof, the podcast series of the University at Buffalo School of Social Work at www.socialwork.buffalo.edu. We're glad you could join us today. The series Living Proof examines social work research and practice that makes a difference in people's lives. I'm your host, Adjua Robinson, and I'd like to take a moment to address you, our regular listeners. We know you have enjoyed the Living Proof podcast as evidenced by the more than 130,000 downloads to date. Thanks to all of you. We'd like to know what value you may have found in the podcast. We'd like to hear from all of you, practitioners, researchers, students, but especially our listeners who are social work educators. How are you using the podcast in your classrooms? Just go to our website at www.socialwork.buffalo.edu forward slash podcast and click on the Contact Us tab. Again, thanks for listening and we look forward to hearing from you. When you have nothing and life is ripping at the seams, you watch your hope and pride just go slipping with your dreams. Everything you knew and loved means nothing to you now. This is an anthem for kids out on the streets. Throw away kids, throw away kids. And those song lyrics by the artist Virus may well represent the sentiment of thousands of youth in this country who have been turned out of their homes overnight and prevented from returning by a parent or guardian. Such adolescents are known as throwaway youth. Today's guest, Catherine Montgomery, is a doctoral student at the University of Texas at Austin's School of Social Work. Ms. Montgomery has worked with at-risk youth and families in a variety of settings, including residential treatment facilities, juvenile detention centers, and drop-in centers for homeless youth. Ms. Montgomery reports on the findings and implications of her recent study on domain-specific factors associated with delinquency among this unique population of adolescents. Her hope is that her work may promote more individualized evidence-based planning in the field of juvenile justice prevention and treatment. Charles Sims, clinical associate professor at the University at Buffalo School of Social Work, spoke with Ms. Montgomery by telephone. Well, thank you, Catherine, for being willing to, to talk with us today about some of your uh, very interesting work in working with throwaway and delinquent youth. Absolutely. I'm happy to be here. Oh, great, great. So I'm wondering if you could tell us a little bit about the term throwaway youth. We hear about kids all the time, but oftentimes we, I don't know if we are all on the same page. Certainly. So OJJDP, the Office of Juvenile Justice, Delinquency, and Prevention, actually came up with a really great definition of throwaway youth back in the early 90s. And they basically said for a, a youth to be deemed as throwaway, they had to have either been prevented from returning home or have been asked or told to leave the home by a parent or household adult. Secondly, they had to have no adequate alternative care arranged for them. And then thirdly, they had to have stayed away from home at least for one night. So really the major differentiating factor between a runaway youth and a throwaway youth is that a youth who's considered throwaway is really forced to leave the home. Very few studies currently exist just because they're so 
difficult to really get a group of this population together to study them. And the ones that do exist, they do tell us a few things. They tell us that one in five youth that are labeled as runaways are in fact throwaway adolescents. But one thing that's very interesting is that although we know a lot about runaway youth, throwaway youth are more likely to reside in single-parent homes and more likely to come from families that have higher levels of conflict, abuse, and neglect than uh, runaway youth, even though that's really prevalent in the, the home of a runaway. Okay. Can you tell us a little bit more about why you chose to study delinquency among runaway youth. What is that nexus about? So my primary area of interest is actually in juvenile delinquency uh, prevention and treatment. However, when we talk about reducing the risk of delinquency or, or treating delinquency, we're actually talking about a quite large umbrella of factors that reside under this term delinquent or delinquency. So for example, when we talk about delinquency or delinquent, we can be referring to a youth with a severe mental illness, a youth who's addicted to substances, displaying internalizing behaviors, or conversely, externalizing behaviors, or a youth who's coming from an incredibly abusive home, or an adolescent who's involved in a gang, or even an adolescent who's displaying a combination of these factors. So all of that said, we also know that interventions are that are more specifically catered to individuals typically are more effective. So a lot of the evidence-based research is coming out to say that if it's more catered specifically to the individual, it's specifically more effective. So thus, I really wanted to conduct a study that was looking more at specific factors that were associated with a more specific group of delinquents about which we know very little, which is throwaway youth. I understand when you were conducting the study or beginning to look at this group of youth, you really were thinking about using a kind of a risk and protective framework. Can you tell us a little bit about what that is and then the rationale for your choosing this particular way of looking at this population? Yeah, certainly. Beginning approximately around 20 years ago with the work of David Hawkins and Richard Catalano, scientists have been investigating this domain-specific factor model associated with juvenile delinquency to inform prevention and treatment efforts. And basically, the basic premise of, of this model is that various factors can place someone at risk of or protect them from juvenile delinquency. Typically, the most commonly referenced example uh, comes from the field of medicine when we talk about the risk and protective factor framework. And people usually cite like heart disease and they say, you know, for example, poor diet, lack of exercise or high blood pressure all contribute to making somebody more at risk of heart disease. So in the same vein, um, it's very similar to how it translates over to juvenile delinquency. But this list of factors, some of them that I just previously mentioned with regard to delinquency, the more a juvenile has, the more at risk they are of becoming delinquent. So of these specific factors that have been studied over the past couple decades, there have been two that are considered to really be the most developed. And these two are individual factors, and examples include attitudes or behavior, mental health, substance use, and then relational factors is what um, we chose to call it for the study, which include both um, peer and family factors. Additionally, most of the current evidence-based practice for juvenile delinquency involves assessment and intervention in both the individual and relational levels, like multisystemic therapy, functional family therapy, multidimensional family therapy. So even just by these names, you can tell that, that they are multisystemic. They involve working with more than just the individual and really have a great emphasis on these relational factors. So thus, we chose to investigate individual and relational factors associated with delinquency among the throwaway population. 
I see. I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about what kinds of, what those risk factors might be or what those protective factors might be or just some examples of what they might look like. Yeah, certainly, certainly. So just as kind of an example, in the individual domain, school attitudes, academic achievement, aggressive behavior, substance use, those are all kind of considered to be some risk factors um, at the individual level, at the relational level. Uh, gang involvement, peer substance use are also considered to be um, risk factors. And protective factors might be things like support from the family or support from the school system, having normative or conventional peers that would adhere to more kind of conventional behaviors. Those are kind of some examples. Let's move from this kind of overview and talk a little bit more about the study, because I think that that will bring some of this to life for individuals that are, or for people who are listening. So can you talk about your study? Can you kind of describe that for us and give us some examples about some of the questions you are asking and kind of give us an, an overview of, of your study? Yeah, absolutely. Um, before I really dive into that, I want to really quickly just acknowledge my colleagues. It's fabulous. So Santa Thompson and Amanda Barczyk both had significant contributions to this work, and they're both with the University of Texas, and I just want to acknowledge their work. And it was actually the three of us that really designed the study together and came up with three questions that we wanted to investigate that we really felt kind of really helped lead this study for us. So the first question, what are the levels of delinquency among throwaway youth? And then secondly, we wanted to know what specific individual and relational factors um, were associated with delinquency among throwaway youth. And then thirdly, we wanted to know to what extent did these particular factors um, predict greater levels of delinquency among this unique population. And so then to tell you just a little bit about the, the participants that we recruited, it's kind of interesting. Like I mentioned before, this is a very difficult population for researchers to really get to. And we were lucky we actually had 170 adolescents in our sample. And at the particular time that this data was collected, from my understanding, in the state at that time, the foster care system was full and there were no places for kids whose parents were relinquishing rights to put these kids. And so what they had done at that time was they actually had these kids be admitted to a detention center through family court and they stayed over on the status offense side until proper care could be arranged for them. So that's actually how we were able to collect the data with these kids. And all these kids were roughly around 15 years of age. More than half of them, about 52%, were female, and they were predominantly either black, about 45%, or white, 36%. And the majority of these adolescents, similar to what we do know about runaway adolescents, they were sexually active, about 80% of them, and about 60% of them, roughly, uh, give or take a little bit, reported smoking cigarettes, drinking alcohol, and or smoking marijuana. So there were a handful of variables, just demographic variables about these adolescents that were similar to what we do know about runaway youth. And whenever we put our study together, um, the dependent variable, of course, was delinquency, which we measured with the youth self-report. And then, like I kind of mentioned earlier, we had this list of these individual and relational risk and protective factor variables that we looked at. Specifically, what we talked about a lot in our findings, well, actually in our methodology, um, were these factors that came up significant at the bivariate level. We ran a whole bunch of individual and relational factors at the bivariate level, and then we came up with this list that actually were significant. So I'll just mention those right now briefly. Um, the individual level ones were school attitudes, academic achievement, depression, aggressive behavior, runaway history, and substance use. 
And then at the relational level, gang involvement, peer substance use, parental support, positive family affect, family conflict, and um, the level of abuse by the parent were all um, factors that came up significant at the bivariate level among this group. So that's just a little bit about our research questions and our participants. With regard to the major findings, our very first question, like I had previously mentioned, was what were the levels of delinquency among throwaway youth? And their delinquency score was quite high. It was 8.06. And compared to the normative sample range, which is roughly a 1.7 to 3.1, this population, um, not surprisingly, has a fairly high level of delinquency. And I say not surprisingly, um, just because when you look at homeless youth or runaway youth, they often engage in a lot of delinquent behaviors for survival skills. So we expected to see a fairly high level of delinquency among this group. With regard to our second question, um, what individual and relational factors were associated with delinquency, what we did is we ran two separate multivariate or multiple regression models because we wanted to see, okay, we know that there's this group of factors that contribute to their delinquency at the bivariate level, but what really stands out when you put them together in a group? So at the individual domain, if youth who had ever run away, carried a weapon, had aggressive behavior, poor school attitudes, or poor academic performance, um, these were all variables that significantly accounted for the variance in their relationship with delinquency. And the effect size for this model was actually pretty good. It was a 0.36 for this model. Then the next model that we did, we looked specifically at the relational domain. And this one, we had gang involvement, peer substance use, and, and family conflict all came out to be significant. But this model actually wasn't as strong. It was only a 0.24. The third question, like I had said earlier, to what extent do individual and relationship factors predict greater delinquency among this group? This is the model that we put together that we included both the individual factors and the relational factors. And we really wanted to see, okay, when you include it all together, what really predicts the likelihood of becoming delinquent or this delinquent behavior? And really interestingly, every single one of the relational factors dropped out of significance. And what remained were all of the same ones that were significant at the individual level, the running away, carrying a weapon, aggressive behavior, and school attitudes and academic performance. And this model was actually a moderate effect size as well. It was a 0.35. So um, that's roughly kind of a snapshot a little bit of the study, the participants, and then some of the major findings that we had come up with. It triggers a couple of questions for me. One of the most interested in at this point is you've got this information, and you know, for a number of our listeners, they're actually working with this population and they're working with the population on a regular basis. So, do you have any thoughts about implications for the field of juvenile delinquency or delinquency work or throwaway youth? Or do you have thoughts about now what? What can the practitioner do with the information that you've been able to develop in your work? The big so what question, right? So what does this all matter? Yeah, that's a great question. So one of the things that this study suggests is that, that throwaway youth do have very similar characteristics, not surprisingly, to that of runaway youth and delinquent youth. So for example, we found that antisocial behavior, the carrying a weapon and running away, aggressive behavior, poor academic performance, involvement with delinquent peers, and youth who come from conflictual family homes, those are all characteristics that this population had that was very similar to and is similar to what we know about delinquent youth in general and runaway youth. Probably what I think is of more interest, at least to me, is how throwaway youth differ from what we know about delinquent youth. One finding that's interesting, and I haven't mentioned too much yet, and I wonder if some listeners find this interesting, is that of drug use. I mentioned really early when we talked a little bit about what a delinquent looks like and substance use is something that I mentioned. However, it's not something that was mentioned when I talked about the variables in the study. 
when we initially did our very first list of bivariate analysis, there were actually several different drug use variables that we looked at. And surprisingly, not one of them came up as significant. In fact, when we even dichotomized drug use and we made it they did or did not use drugs, it did not come up as a significant variable that was associated with delinquency among this population. Now, you might recall earlier when I was describing this particular group, about 60% of them did report using marijuana. So they definitely had a high percent of them that used drugs. However, among this population, it was not strongly associated with whether or not they were more or less likely to be delinquent, which is interesting. And kind of in the same vein is alcohol use. Now, alcohol use was one of the variables that we did have come up significant at the bivariate level. But when we put it into the multivariate, the multiple regression model, it actually dropped out and wasn't significantly associated with their delinquency. So this is something that's really interesting and different about this population than what we know about general delinquent youth. Another finding that was very interesting for us was that of gender. A couple things interesting. One, as you may recall, about 52% of this population was female. And what, what we know about both runaway and delinquent youth is a larger percentage of them are male. Something else that's interesting that I think a lot of people know delinquency um, research know is that simply being male places someone at greater risk of becoming delinquent. It's considered a risk factor. And so one thing that was really interesting about the study was that at least among this group of throwaway youth, being male or female really didn't play a role in, um, in their delinquency. And then really the third, and, and probably what I think is a really interesting finding, is this emphasis on only individual factors in the final model. What we know, and, and when you get into the delinquency literature, there's a lot that says that when you intervene with the family and you intervene at multiple levels, you're more likely to get positive outcomes. And like I mentioned before, there's all these different evidence-based practices, and all of them are multisystemic currently that I'm aware of that are used and considered to be evidence-based practices with delinquent youth. However, this study suggests that for throwaway youth, it's actually the individual factors that are really more significant in being associated and accounting for their delinquency. So that said, there's just a couple of other implications that we've kind of drawn from this study. One, kind of in the vein of what I was just saying is, is it different from what we know about effective interventions with delinquent youth? The study suggests that we might need to focus more on individual characteristics in assessment and treatment planning among this specific population. And then the other implication that we drawn is it that we drew is that it illustrates the need to emphasize more individual treatment planning and working with and understanding specific types of delinquent youth. And what I mean by that, and this is kind of why I was drawn to do this study initially, is I'm very interested in delinquent youth in general. However, because there are so many different types of youth, I think the study really emphasizes the need for us to really look at maybe different types of youth who are at risk of becoming delinquent to see if they do need more specialized and individualized treatment planning rather than looking at it more kind of as a broad term of delinquent. As I listen to you talk about it, a discussion or this notion that, at least with this particular group of individuals or kids, as, I, as some of us may refer to them as, that the older notions of, you know, we got to get the family involved in, or the notion of we got to get the family involved and in, that's going to be the critical crux of the work. While important, we really have to pay attention to the individual factors that might be impinging upon this child at, at the same time also. 
So you talked a little bit about the study, and you talked a little bit about your findings and how you think that this will be important in the field. So where do you go from here? What are you thinking about your next steps? Do you plan on staying here? Or, it sounds like you're, you have a passion for this population or a passion for individuals who have a history of juvenile delinquency. Is this where you plan on staying and building on this? I do have a passion for delinquency prevention and treatment, and I think the results of this study really lead me to be interested to study additional groups of adolescents who are at risk of becoming delinquent. So I'd be interested in looking at maybe some more specific adolescents who fall under particular categories. So maybe adolescents with ADHD, I'm definitely very also interested in mental health being a risk factor for delinquency. And so I would like to know, you know, to what extent do we need to cater more specific interventions to youth who have particular mental illness? So I think for me, the next steps are to really investigate and look for gaps in the research of where other people haven't looked at some of these more specific factors of adolescents who are more likely to be delinquent. If you were talking to a group of social workers, budding social work students who were looking at or were very interested in working with uh, this population of throwaway youth or throwaway delinquent youth, what would you want to leave them with? What would be, you think, for yourself would be the most important thing for them to walk away with as they begin to think about how they're going to do the work? That's a really, really great question. You know, I would think the answer to that is kind of twofold. And it actually kind of, I think it's theoretically based. I was reading about this in a, a HIPSI book, The Human Behavior in the Social Environment, just last semester, about talking about the importance of the general and the unique that we need to pay attention to when we work with our client and that we need to think about both. And so the, the general being what do we know generally about this population and, and really how it applies to this study? What have we learned um, about throwaway use generally, right? And so some of the things that we learn is that substance use doesn't necessarily uh, make them more or less likely to become delinquent. You know, we've learned some of the ways that they differ and that we may need to focus more, like you were saying before, that we were saying before, on these individual factors, maybe having them play more of an emphasis and more of a role in our assessment and treatment planning. But then secondly, and I think of equal, if not really greater importance, is the unique. And this kind of goes back to I think a lot of theoretical underpinnings, underpinnings of social workers in general is really what's going on with this individual specifically. And so I think it's very important for social work students to use studies like this to understand the general, but then also be armed and, and ready to, to learn about the unique, about the individual, and really specifically, you know, what is going on for this individual separate from all of the things that we know in research you know, what can I learn about this individual by asking them about their family history and about their own journey and their own story really to inform my treatment planning. So that's probably what I would say. Oh, thank you. Excellent. Thank you. We appreciate the opportunity to talk with you today and the time that you've spent with us. And good luck in your work. And uh, we'll be looking forward to reading more about your work with working with delinquent and throwaway youth. Great. Thank you so much. You've been listening to Katherine Montgomery discuss her research on throwaway youth. Thanks for listening and join us again next time for more lectures and conversations on social work practice and research. Hi, I'm Nancy Smith, Professor and Dean at the University at Buffalo School of Social Work. Thanks for listening to our podcast. For more information about who we are, our history, our programs, and what we do, 
we invite you to visit our website at www.socialwork.buffalo.edu. At UB, we are living proof that social work makes a difference in people's lives.